evenings. Today's scripture reading is from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Let's say together a prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake <clears throat> and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Jake. Um, it is also always good to um, welcome uh, visitors with us. And if you're visiting with us, I trust you feel welcome. And if not, I'm going to be at that table right after service with a warm cup of coffee and a big smile to ensure that you feel welcome before you leave. And so if you would like to uh, meet me, um, some people tell me it's quite an honor to meet me. Um, no, it would be an honor to meet you. And if you had some time, would like to invite you uh, for a cup of coffee following. We are more than halfway through the season of Lent, a journey that began with Ash Wednesday, and we didn't have an Ash Wednesday service, but if you went to an Ash Wednesday service, one of the things that is done by the pastor in an Ash Wednesday service, are you okay with me touching you? Um, is that they would uh, take ashes, usually from uh, burnt uh, palm branches and mixed with oil, and they would make the sign of the cross right on your forehead. Do you feel that? The cross, sign of the cross right there? You feel that? Uh, and it would be a mark, a mark preparing you for a season journeying towards the cross. That is what Lent is about. Now, the sign of the cross, the ash that is put on your head, does two things. One, it reminds you of your mortality. It reminds us that we were made from dust and to dust we shall return. In other words, to journey towards the cross is to journey as a person who is aware and cognizant of the fact that we are human beings, we have frailties, we have limitations. That sometimes, despite our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, we find ourselves having our frailties and our weakness dominate our lives. Uh, weaknesses often and fatigue often leads to behavior and actions that we would rather not have. And I know at this point, no one is going to say amen, but I'll say amen on your behalf because that is truth. That there is a sense in which traveling to the cross is an honest journey that takes into account the reality of our human condition. But the cross itself is our hope. 
It is towards the cross that we are journeying. So our journey of recognizing perhaps our frailty, our weakness, our sin that sometimes easily entangles, that rears its head in our life, is not one that is without hope. And so, as we look today very briefly towards the cross, we are looking at it through an image given to us in Numbers chapter 21. Before I go further, I already forgot to do something. This morning we are going to, I'm going to preach shorter to which all God's people says, hallelujah. Okay? I take that as a compliment, uh, but I am going to be shorter. And the reason I'm going to preach a little shorter is we want to give opportunity for you to engage in a conversation with me on the theme that I'm preaching on. You can do that in two ways. One, you can use your mobile phone. Now, please don't play Tetris. Do you still play Tetris on a mobile phone? Candy Crush, Candy Crush. Uh, don't play Candy Crush on your phone, but you can text your question live texting to the number that's going to be up on the screen in a moment. Uh, 403-250-8844. And following my sermon, we're going to respond and talk a little bit about the themes that arise. Now, in order to ask good questions, you must listen well. <laughs> and so I, I do ask that you be attentive despite having permission from me, not that you needed to use your cell phones. Um, so let me uh, get right into it and share with you some thoughts from the scripture this morning. The image of the cross that is given to us is derived from... Numbers chapter 21, and Giovanni Fantoni, an artist, created an image that is on the back that you can see on the screen right now that we have displayed today. It is apparently, and Pastor Ryan has actually been here, I think him, uh, the, the, the two of you have been at this very site. Uh, it is an image that is, or a sculpture that is at the front of a Franciscan monastery that marks the traditional site of Mount Nebo. And it's east of the Dead Sea, I've been told as I researched it, where it is believed Moses viewed the promised land and where he would eventually be laid to rest. The image that is behind me is an interesting one. If you pay attention to it, you'll see two things. One, it is shaped like a cross. Do you see that? It also has a depiction of the person of Christ kind of embedded in the bronze kind of outline. Do you see that? And it has... The serpent, which is interesting, the snake that runs all the way down it. Now, there is a reason why this particular artist renders this particular sculpture this way. And it is an interesting consideration. Once I explain it to you, all of you will go, well, that was just so helpful. But here's what is happening. The artist himself is presenting to us what happens in Numbers 21. It is as the story is told to us that the people have been set free from Egypt. They have left Egypt and they are now on their way to the promised land. We are told that as they travel, they begin to complain. It seems like they had a let's go back to Egypt committee in the church. I've been told that sometimes churches have those kinds of committees. I hope we don't. The Let's Go Back to Egypt committee repeatedly complains as life becomes difficult. And with every challenge and obstacle they face, God provides a way of relief. So when they run out of water, he instructs Moses, he takes his rod, touches the rock and water while he strikes it, and water gushes forth. When they're on another dry location with water that is there but is undrinkable, God gives Moses the insight to put this piece of wood in the water and it makes it sweet. 
As they need food, he provides quail. As they need direction, he provides his cloud and his fire and his pillar. There is a sense in which every way that they traveled, every part of the journey that they traveled, and every murmuring that they made, God responded and relieved them at least as they made their journey. But now we find ourselves you know, in a place where they have complained successively, we are told this is the fifth murmuring story in Numbers, and what is different about this murmuring is the fact that they no longer blame Moses and Aaron. So up until this point, Skyview has blamed me. God has said, you are the source of our frustration. <laughs> Please, I hope that's not true. Uh, but they've kind of put it all on the human agent. But now, in this particular text, they blame God. They say, it is you who have brought us to this very place. And then the scripture resolves the following way. God responds by sending fiery serpents, snakes amongst them. These snakes bite them. They die, and then they turn their complaints into petition. They turn to Moses, and they say, please, Pray to God that he would remove the snakes from amongst us. God responds in a very particular way. Does not remove the snakes, but indeed instructs Moses to create an image of a snake on a pole, instructing him that everyone that is bitten and is about to die, when they look up at this pole, they will be healed. Now, I don't know if you are like me, but I do not like snakes. If you were to give me a choice between any pet, a snake would literally be the last one on my list. I know that there are some of you perverse enough amongst us who like snakes as pets, and for you I pray. But the idea of a snake in classical mythology, just stay with me for a moment, uh, was, 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 dif was viewed differently than we do today. Asclepius, a Greek healing deity, for example, is depicted as a single twisted serpent on a staff. It is the mythological image that has been used by medical institutions in Europe and the United States to define or to represent the medical arts. Some of you would know this from the bracelets that people used to wear, and if you wore those bracelets, it usually meant don't give you certain medications. The snake in the Bible is first introduced to us in Genesis, of course, as the personification of Satan, of evil himself, enticing Eve and then Adam to disobey God's instruction and to eat from the tree God forbid them to touch. Later, when Moses confronts Pharaoh in Egypt on behalf of Israel's God, it is Aaron's staff that is transformed into a powerful snake that devours the snakes of the Egyptian magicians. And we can interpret that particular event to mean this, that God displayed his power over Egypt's God through transforming a staff into a snake and thereby consuming the lesser snakes of Egypt. But we find ourselves in a very peculiar portion of Scripture. This God has had enough of the people's complaining. It seems that when things get hard on the journey towards freedom and promise, that the people do what is natural for all of us to do. I think our Christian life is one of journey. We are seeking to follow after God. And if I can just be a little bit uh, uh, relevant to our current context, I think that there are times in which we become weary. The fact that you're not answering confirms it. 
There are times perhaps that we are prone to complain. And if we resonate with the Israelites, we also would feel the sting of what God does because of their complaints. This morning as I led our group, someone commented that this is an uncomfortable text because God seems to act in such a judgmental way. He responds in such a way as to say, I won't, you know, uh, while you're complaining, let me add more uh, provision to you. He judges them through bringing these snakes into their very presence. And these snakes bite them and they begin to die. I think that if I was a poor preacher, which I hope I'm not, I would stick in the Old Testament and just hammer really hard on judgment. Thank you. Raise up a child in the way they should go. (laughs) And I would tell you that there is a consequence for sin. And as a good preacher, I will pause there for a moment and say, absolutely. It seems that in the evangelical church, we deprave from a good theology of sin. We we don't talk about it. We, We don't want to hear about it. And we certainly don't want to live in the consequences of disobedience. But the Bible repeatedly, and in this particular text, you can't dismiss it. When you disobey God, there is consequences to such disobedience. The snakes bite and they kill. And the people turn to Moses, and Moses acts like Jesus. Do you see that in the text? He becomes the mediator, the intercessor, the person who speaks to God on behalf of the people, kind of like Jesus does. That's why we think of Moses as a prototype to Jesus. And he intercedes on behalf of the people, and God responds in the particular way he does. Here's all I'm saying so far. We have to take sin seriously, because the Bible does. We have to take it seriously as Christians because we see that it is contrary to the plan and the will of God for all of creation. We have to talk about it honestly, and we have to create the kind of community where we do not only talk about it in such a way as to facilitate guilt and make people feel convicted, but to offer the hope and the remedy that comes through the word of God. But of sin, we must talk. One of the values of our church is transparency, and I know how hard it is to be transparent about things that are difficult in our lives. I thought that none of us here would like to be that transparent and vulnerable and say, you know, I have done things perhaps that have caused harm or hurt to others. Or I've been the victim of the sinful habits or addictions of somebody else. Or I have been participant to something that has caused destruction in the relationship of someone else. And here is the fallacy we all tell ourselves. We often tell ourselves, we medicate ourselves to say we are better than we really are. But Christian faith paints a very, very stark picture. It says that even those who desire to follow at times find themselves failing. And the message this morning is not one that ends there. It's one that combines the image that Giovanni gives us. An image that is taken from John chapter 3. And if you know your Bible well, you know that Jesus in response to Nicodemus and talking to him says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I want to impress you with a term. This is called intra-biblical reimagining. Are you impressed yet? All it simply means is Jesus looks back and interprets that event in terms of what he will offer people. When the people looked up and saw a bronze snake on a cross, they were healed from their snake venom, and therefore they would not die. When Jesus would be risen up on a cross, he would offer forgiveness and healing to all who look upon that cross through the grace that comes through God. So as we journey, we journey towards the cross in honesty. 
The first thing I invite you to do is to be honest about your life. I think Lent is the season for honest reflection. It's the kind of reflection that, that doesn't afford us the opportunity to be self-deceptive. I, I, you know, I, I don't want you to sense here that Stu is being hard. <laughs> but I, I, I want you to kind of get the sincerity in the, in, in, in the scripture that, that there is a consequence to living in a particular way and that God shows us very clearly that he responds with judgment to the people who have disobeyed his ways. But this particular image that is behind us is, is a symbol. It is not the source of their healing. It points forward to a God who is gracious to forgive those who become repentant. And let me just give you this tidbit of information. 500 years following the incident in Numbers, get this, in 2 Kings, King Hezekiah, when he started to become king of Judah, you know what one of the first things he did when he was trying to return people to faithfulness to God? He smashed all the idols that they had accumulated. And you know what one of those idols was? <laughs> was the bronze snake. It's interesting to me for two reasons. That the source of the people's healing was not to become the object of their healing. You following with me? You know when I talked about, when I talked about idolatry, I said to you, idolatry is not just replacing God with other gods, but idolatry is actually trying to create a God that we can manipulate and control. That in other words, there's a sense in which when God offers the answer to them by looking at the very thing that brought judgment to them, he was bringing hope and liberation. And in the process saying, don't make this the source of your healing. I am the source of your healing. When we look to the cross, we are not becoming fascinated with an object. We are becoming fascinated with the one who died there and rose so that we may have life. But why look at a snake? so that we would be honest about where we are because of our own choices. Do you not find it fascinating that of all the images that God could have used for them to look at, what about a nice cherubim? Although we know in the Bible they're not that nice. What about a dove? That's a good Christian image, right? Or how about the ichthus, the fish? A little early for that but a snake, a symbol of what happens when you choose to live in a way that is contrary to God. You see, here's the thing that happens in the church today. We tend to rely upon the grace of God so deeply that we diminish the significance of sin and we live in contrary ways to the will of God. I think the cross at Lent presents us an honest reflection that says the cost that has been paid for your sin has come at a great price. The cross begs us to become confessional, to become repentant, to look honestly at our lives and say that the grace that is afforded to us is a grace that costs somebody something. So whereas Israel paid with being bit by snakes, are you still following me? Can you say amen? Okay, about half of you, that's good. So Jesus becomes the one who takes all the bites on our behalf so that we may have the life we have today through him. So we are invited to become honest about our journey. And as we become honest about our journey, there's particular things that I think we as Christians learn to do well. We learn to repent. I want to speak about that as I close, and all God's people says amen. There's this false notion that when I become a Christian, I'm good to go. 
No further bodywork needed. This model is as good as it gets. But there's a truth to our Christian life that says it is a journey in which God is constantly shaping, developing, and growing us into the people he longs us to be. Both John Wesley, a Wesleyan theologian, at least the way we think of him now, and Jonathan Edwards, a Reformed theologian, both agreed on one point. They didn't always agree on everything. But in this they agreed, that to grow in Christ-likeness requires honesty and confession of sin. How do we do that? How do we do it well? I think, first of all, we begin with an understanding of what I'm talking about, that to confess our sins is to acknowledge wrong in thought, in word, or action. By that definition, most of us here would have to confess something. But it is also to accept responsibility and not to project upon someone else as if to blame someone else for where we are. There seems to be this prevailing victimization culture. There's always someone else to blame. There's always someone else who did something to me. Now, I'll be honest with you. There are some people that have been knuckleheads in my life. That's the most sanctified name I can give them. But there's been many times where I got to admit that my decisions made me the knucklehead. There's been times in my life where I have been prone as a person to project upon somebody else the reason that I'm struggling. And one of the dangers when we talk about confession in the church is, is that one of the hindrances for many of us is, is we're still living in this false reality of saying, if so-and-so, or if somebody else, or if that person would have just done something different, I would not be suffering as I have suffered. But to be those who repent is to turn to Jesus on a day like this and to say, let me be responsible for my own actions, my own thoughts, my own words. It is not only to not blame someone else, but it is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. There's no better time in this season of Lent to look to the cross and see there a God who despite our failures, our shortcomings, and even our sins, offers us there a great grace and forgiveness. One of the most liberating things that I've experienced in my own journey is when I've been forgiven even though I've not deserved such forgiveness. I experienced that very intimately in my marriage relationship with my wife who has had to practice forgiveness quite often. I know men, I'm not the only one. But to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God is to believe in faith that when we do so, that God truly does forgive. Human relationships are fickle, aren't they? So God might convict you today and you may go, I want to make it right with Sam. Sam and I had a karaoke battle the other night and <laughs> when I won, I just rubbed it in his face and there's unresolved conflict between the two of us. And so I come to Sam and I say, Sam, please forgive me for my karaoke pride. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. <laughs> I don't know what Sam's going to do. Intuition tells me that human beings are fickle. They may reject me. They may not listen. They may push me away. He may judge me. He may say he's sorry, but he doesn't really mean it. Have you ever had that happen? Our relationship is forever marred. We never sing again together. 
something about human relationship that, that hurts our ability to believe that when we actually confess we have a God of mercy who truly does come and graciously forgives. And I suggest to you that the only way we get there is in faith. There's no other, there's no other currency in, Christian, in, in the Christian life than to in faith believe that as we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, that he does not push us away, but indeed receives us as his own. He gives us assurance that we are forgiven, but he also invites us to turn from that which is wrong. I know that on a Sunday like this, my temptation was to preach a message that I just preached this past Tuesday because it was a lot more happy. It's a lot more exciting to preach on happy themes. And, and I actually do believe that this is a liberating theme. This is an important theme. It's not something that is easy to talk about. Sin is not an easy subject to talk about. And in fact, when I saw that we're doing Q&A today, I thought, I don't know if anybody's going to talk to me today. But I hope perhaps we can have an honest conversation about the role of confession in your own life. What does that look like? The New Testament says this, confess your sins to one another. Now, I want to be very clear. We don't have a papal theology by which we believe that you have to confess your sin to a priest or a pastor. <laughs> Our confession is to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the body of Christ is is invited to act in such a way, to be such a community in which people can be honest. Now, man, I, I can go on and I'm going to finish because I want to hear from you. It's so hard to create that kind of community. Isn't it? It's so hard to be of a community uh, where, we, where when we fail and if we have sin in our life, no one's going to stand and lord it over us and use it against us, but there's going to be a robust a love for the person that doesn't allow such behavior to continue, but encourages that person towards the grace and the mercy of God and to living in the ways of God. It's so hard to do this. And I got to be honest with you, the only way I've accessed it in my life is through personal friendships. Uh, through people that I've learned to trust over time. I don't think it happens en masse. And the places I've been most liberated has been with those who I have trusted deeply and have reflected back to me the very grace and mercy that God has given me. To which all God's people says, thanks be to God. So let's talk <laughs> about a difficult subject. And I'm going to have my very esteemed friend and colleague. May I call your colleague today? Whatever you like. <laughs> he says that, but he doesn't mean it. If he meant it, he would let me beat him on squash, but he doesn't do that. Um, have we received some questions? We do, yes. We do, yeah. okay. We do. And um, are they good questions? Well, you can decide okay. that. <laughs> you can decide that. Okay. Um, so uh, feel free to text questions if you haven't, and as we go through this conversation. Uh, if you want to ask a question out loud, just put your hand up. I'll come to you with a microphone, and we can do this either way. Happy to, uh, to float about in these, uh, these different directions. So, uh, All right, let's begin with... Uh, earlier on, you spoke about the let's go back to Egypt committee, okay? <laughs> let's think about this metaphorically. Uh, sometimes on personal levels, yeah. we want to go back to Egypt. Sometimes yeah. as a congregation, we want to go back to Egypt. Right. Uh, how does one combat this propensity that is certainly natural for individuals and for congregations to want? 
Yeah, one commentator, I, that, that term is not, is, not, uh, is not original to me, I can't claim it. One commentator just kind of alluded to that, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. That there is a tendency when things get hard on the journey of following God for us to look back. I think that's just, that, that, that is, is, and I find in the church sometimes we look back to what the church was and we say, man, can we recover the old church? The church that was on fire, the church that was vibrant, the church that had numbers, you know, lots of people. And I think to look back is to, is, to, is to go contrary to the way in which God is always working. He's doing work that is causing us to move forward, uh, whether it be as an individual. And, and, and though there's an important aspect of our Christian life that says, let's not forget what is in the past, there's certainly a way in which our past can bind us. So sometimes in pastoral counsel with somebody, when uh, you know, something happened to them when they were a young child or uh, you know, a teenager, still has this incredible power over them and still exercises power over them. It still defines their life. In those moments, I know that I have to honor the significance of what has happened in the past in terms of what it has done to the person. But I also want to offer them a way forward. And a lot of times, that way forward is, is not one that changes overnight. I don't think we just get there overnight. It's a process of prayer and learning uh, to trust and rely upon the one who leads us. Simply put, we as a community of faith can look back and say, are our best years behind us, or are we trusting that God is leading us in the new day? And that requires faith. I don't know if I quite answered that, but that's the best I got right now. So. A question on transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, what role does accountability play? Sorry, the screen froze. There we go. Uh, what role does accountability play in the life of a church? And what are some ways that Skyview does or could create opportunities for people to share honestly with what is happening in our lives? So accountability is built into our community in a few ways. One, as pastor, I don't make decisions on my own. I'm not a one-man show. Um, I have a board that I'm accountable to, so on an organizational level, these people keep me honest. And quite frankly, I need them to. Um, and I don't mean that I intend to be dishonest, but I could lead out of just my own thoughts without consulting and learning to listen to others. One of the values of our church is transparency, simply because we desire to be the kind of community where people don't have to feel that they have to be something other than who God has made them to be. That said, we have a long ways to go in actually really living into what that means. Um, the question again, Joel? Yes. Sorry, I'll go back to you. Um, what are some ways that Skyview does or could yeah. create opportunities for people to share honestly with what is happening in our lives? I think our Skyview stories, it's, 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 it's a tense thing to do while in community, at least in a worship service, right? We're not asking you to come up here and air your dirty laundry to everyone. <laughs> But what we want to do is we want to create the kind of community where we're not afraid um, to share where we're really at and what we're dealing with. That's one of the things we're trying to do. Uh, the other thing that we are working towards as a community is establishing this missional community identity by which our fellowship is with a, fewer, a less amount of people than on a Sunday with the intention that we can actually develop those trusting relationships and actually hold one another accountable to that which God is saying and doing. Accountability is not just about have you sinned. Accountability is are you obeying and following and trusting what God is leading you into. So in those particular ways we're trying to, on a very practical level, we communicate through a newsletter. We tell you how we're doing. We tell you what the board is about. Uh, on a practical level, we try to communicate as honestly through announcements where we are in the process. Uh, our books, our finances, everything is open to any person that attends our community to see. But on a spiritual level, we're inviting closer relationships through this missional community initiative. 
A couple of follow-up questions related to confession. Yes. Uh, could you clarify a little bit on the relationship between confessing our sins to Christ uh, versus confessing our sins to one another? Yeah. Well, the, the New Testament reference there is made within the context of the significance of accountability to helping us actually live true to our confession. The, 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 the New Testament is not suggesting that any person here has the authority to forgive anybody else's sins. So I want to make that very clear. But the reality is, when we confess our sins to God, you know, kind of do that in faith, God, yes, but we often find that we need somebody incarnate. I feel that if I'm sitting with you and I say, this is what I did, and you say in turn to me, that's not good, but what are we going to do about it? How are we going to get to where God wants you to be? And the next time we meet, you sit down with me and you say, how are you doing in that area? That's, a, that, that's kind of, you know, a, a, a level of accountability that brings flesh to flesh and doesn't just leave it in this kind of what we often tend to do is I've said it to God, but I've not confessed it to others. So there's something about actual confession to a person, a trusted person, and I can say a lot about this. One, be careful who you confess to. <laughs> not everybody has the maturity or the integrity to walk well with what you share with them. But two, the Bible also instructs us how to deal with it, how to help people. The reason we confess is so that we would continue to grow. Here's the thing with unconfessed sin. It keeps us living at the level we are at, and we don't grow in grace and faith. And so I would suggest that we as a community find ways. I would, I would suggest the following. Be intentional with trying to find a trusted person or two in your life. Someone that you can sit down with and have honest conversations with. I have someone in my life that is not part of this community, not part of this church, and calls me out on a number of things, but I trust wholeheartedly, and that's where I find um, a lot of help. Confession to Christ, I think that's part of why we have benches here as pews. We are a church that believes these benches that represent altars, opportunities for us to come before God on a regular basis. I don't know if you're like me, there are some weeks where I'm really disappointed with myself. There are times in which, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I didn't live up to what God wanted me to live up to. And not that you only have to wait till Sunday to confess that. I think our prayer time on a regular basis has to be opportunities for us to be confessional before the Lord and to bring before Him uh, what is important. But as a community that values intergenerational ministry, I will say this. We have prayer altars here, and we invite people to pray and come confessionally, come for healing, different things that we do at the altar for a number of reasons. One, for the person himself, restoring relationship, but two, to teach our children that as adults, we need the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. If you want to teach somebody else their need for a Savior, then let them see your need for a Savior. And I believe wholeheartedly that as we continue to live confessional lives, we we will receive victory and grace and mercy to continue to live forward in a way that reveals that God is at work within our life. Yeah. Confession can happen in many forms. Um, can happen publicly. It can happen privately. Uh, any thoughts on which form is best uh, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, and so forth? Yes. Um, I think, I think um, one has to be discerning of... Um, the community, and one has to be discerning of what you're dealing with. I would say on the personal level, uh, if something is, uh, how would I say this, uh, true but not beneficial for everybody to know, <laughs> uh, 
I think one approaches a pastor, someone with maturity, someone whom we know one can speak to and sit down with, and one can deal with it that way. I think public confession is important in, in, in terms of what it represents, although I think the content of public confession at times might be problematic, but I would say this. I think there are times where churches have to actually repent from ways in which they have erred and things they have failed. Uh, sometimes churches have practiced um, things in our history, in our past, that has not been right, and we have seen churches take responsibility in a public setting to say, we failed. Uh, I think about the role that the church played with indigenous people in this country. I think that confession to us is not weakness in the sense that it actually says to people, we're humble enough to recognize when we're wrong. And we are a people that are willing to say, God have mercy on us so that we may also have mercy on others. I think confession is a powerful way of revealing the character and the heart of Christ. And I think we as a church should not be shy to the gift that it is. Confessing to others can be a terrifying oh, yeah. thing, especially when... Especially if you're a pastor. Especially if you're a pastor. <laughs> it doesn't come natural to us. Yeah. Um, how would you encourage someone to take the initial steps in confessing to another person? Well, I, I think intentionality matters. If you want to live a Christ-honoring life, um, you will take this message seriously, and you will examine your life seriously, and you'll say, what are some of the areas that I've kind of seen repetitive things, things that are not going away, um, and, uh, and say, if I'm going to take this seriously, how do I actually approach um, uh, finding the help and the support I, I need? The first thing that pastors ought to always say is pray, right? But it begins there. <laughs> but I think praying specifically that God would perhaps lead you or show you somebody that you can develop a trusting relationship with. Uh, it may not just be one person, it might be multiple people. I, I really believe this is important. I think we need trusted friends who can help us in our journey. And, and the thing about accountability or confessing is, 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 is it's, it's, it's this unique thing that if I came to you, uh, Joel, and, and I opened up my heart to you, it's very hard, unless you've practiced this, for you actually to go, well, that's cool, but I'm not going there. Um, there's something about that kind of accountability that is reciprocal. It creates within that relationship the ability for people to actually give and receive on a level that uh, is defined by humility. So I would say pray about that, seek out somebody, talk to me. I have some resources on it, but I, I feel it's such a personal journey for many of us that some of us need to take uh, that perhaps it begins with prayer and discerning. Uh, there's people in our community that I have uh, incredible trust and faith in that has the maturity to, to provide those kinds of godly friendships. Uh, but from our children through to our young people and to those of us who are not as young as we once were, I think we all can benefit from relying upon those kinds of friendships and being intentional in developing them. Uh, it doesn't come easy. When I left Toronto, I left one of those trusted friendships geographically behind, but thanks be to God, we've still been able to maintain those kinds of connections over time. Uh, a historical slash contextual type mm -hmm. of question. Uh, do you think the reference to the snake in John is a metaphor for Jesus looking back at history? Or is the event in Exodus a prophecy looking forward to Jesus? It does both. Uh, I think it looks back in order to say to a Jewish mind who remembers, because remembering is one of the critical things we have to practice in the church. If we don't remember well, we tend to repeat history. 
And so I think Jesus' references, his intra-biblical references, when he looks at the old and reinterprets it in light of his present life and looks ahead, is intentional. He's saying, I want you to remember what happened once, but at the same time, he's foreshadowing where he's going and what he's going to do, which wasn't done before. So I would say it does both. Look back and cast um, a shadow towards the cross saying, I will forgive, I will offer grace, unlike what you've received in the old uh, once and for all. Do you think mentorship is an important avenue to practice confession? Is there value to confessing to someone who's further down the road versus perhaps a peer? Yeah. I think there's value with wisdom. Age doesn't always equal wisdom. To quote somebody I've listened to recently, he says, you are assured that you will grow older. It doesn't mean you'll grow wiser. <laughs> um, but there is, on the assumption that someone is mature in the sense that they are a person that displays the attributes, the characters, and the qualities of somebody that knows Jesus Christ, someone that loves the Lord, loves the community. Uh, I think those are important qualities. Um, I think that um, we often, in our evangelical circles, put a lot on ourselves. We have to find and we have to figure out everything ourselves. And I'll come back to what I said earlier, Joel. I really think discernment is a matter of prayer and waiting on the Lord. And, um, and I think that when we take that seriously and with that intention and we start approaching people and asking, God may lead us in that particular way. But from a maturity perspective, um, perhaps there's something to be said for age that is helpful. Um, but I've found that I've learned from people that are sometimes younger than me, and I'm still, I'm, I'm very young still, you know. Very, for, yes, very. Thank, thank you very much, yeah. Uh, but I've learned from people younger than me. Uh, I wouldn't want to short-circuit this in any ways and say it has to be somebody older. But hopefully, older people have wisdom experience that we can learn from. Uh, but most importantly, do they have the characters and the qualities of the gift of God's Spirit at work within their life? Final question, and then uh, we'll have Bob and team to come lead us to conclude our service. Uh, if there's one thing you want us to remember today, what would it be? One thing. I would say this. I would say that God is always ready to forgive. Um, the one thing that... Um, that I don't know, you know if I can be this candid with you, but when we fail, when we fall short, when we hurt somebody, when we do something we didn't think we wanted to do or knew we shouldn't have done, our, our, our gut says to us that mercy is not there, that grace is not there. And the very thing that we have to fight against is the natural inclination to push away from the grace that is offered to us. If I can put it to you this way, the reason we come together on a Sunday is to remind ourselves that that grace is always available. And that grace is um, costly, yes. Um, I don't think God, when we ask forgiveness, necessarily saves us from consequences. You know, sometimes people operate that way. Well, I said sorry to God, but, you know, so-and-so is still being a jerk to me. Oh, I said sorry to God, but I'm still dealing with this. I, I don't think it's like bad parenting to think that God just removes every consequence from poor decisions. But we tend to operate that way. And so I, I would offer this, though. God is always willing and ready to forgive. And I want to suggest this to the community. I want to suggest this to us. Man, we have to practice forgiveness because forgiveness is necessary throughout your life. <laughs> I'm just going to, throw, I'm going to throw it out there. Every one of us needs to learn how to receive and to offer it. Great.
Thank you, Pastor. Thank you.